special edition of the Second MBA Podcast and Experience Starting Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Professor Mike Linnitz. Mike is a member of the faculty here at the Darden School of Business, specifically the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship faculty, and he is also the school's Chief Strategy Officer. We recently connected with Mike as part of our ongoing Office Hour series in conjunction with Darden Ideas to Action. We talked with Mike about his story, what led him to Darden, what he enjoys about teaching Darden students, as well as his research in areas like climate change and sustainability. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mike Lennox. Mike, um, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got to Darden. Yeah, well, I am what we affectionately call a double who, which means that I actually have two degrees from the University of Virginia. Uh, I did both my bachelor's and master's degrees uh, in systems engineering. So I actually have an engineering background. Uh, eventually went on and got my PhD in economics from MIT, uh, specifically in the areas of technology management and policy. And we can, we can talk more about that. Um, but in terms of kind of coming back, you know, I joke that I, I wandered in the darkness for about 15 years before finding my way back to UVA in Charlottesville, uh, joined the Darden faculty in 2008. So I've been here now a little over 13 years uh, and uh, have, have enjoyed every minute of it, of being back at, at UVA and being affiliated with Darden. Well, you mentioned being uh, who and in the parlance of the University of Virginia. Um, what about Darden appealed to you? Obviously, you, you've been some places, you had the experience of doing your PhD at another school, but you, you chose to come back to the University of Virginia to be at Darden. What, what resonated with you about the experience here? Yeah, I mean, I spent some time on the faculty at NYU and Duke, and um, I think one of the things that really appealed to me about Darden was our, our focus on the students and teaching. Um, you know, I always say that kind of the dirty little secret in higher ed is that all too often um, the emphasis is on research at the expense of teaching and they're treated as almost as uh, in diametrically opposed. Um, I don't think that's the case. And I think Darden is a place that values teaching. It's core to what we do. Um, and, and that really appealed to me. And I think it's also the particular way we do uh, pedagogy and teaching, uh, what we call kind of student-centered learning. And of course you hear about the case method, um, but it's even beyond that. It's this idea that uh, you know we wanna hear from you, we wanna hear from each other, and it's a collective learning experience. And, and that just creates an incredibly strong community at Darden um, that just energizes me. You know, it, you know, I just get energized from being at Darden in the Darden classroom. Well, let's talk about what you teach. Um, what, what courses do you teach at, at Darden? Yeah, so my primary teaching is in the uh, core strategy course that we teach. Uh, I am a section B loyalist. So for those of you who aren't aware, we uh, put our students into sections, typically in the residential MBA program. Uh, they have A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, so I've been teaching in section B again for over a dozen years. Uh, in addition to that, I teach an elective called Strategy in the Digital Age, um, which is focusing on digital transformation and what's happening around AI and the like and how it's affecting the strategies of firms. Uh, and then in addition, I do a fun little seminar I've been doing for about a decade uh, called Cryptically the Mead Liberal Arts Seminar. Uh, it's actually named after a famous undergraduate seminar at UVA. Uh, and in that, the students actually drive the curriculum. And it's beyond business topics. We will tackle any and all topics of interest to the students. Each week, a different student takes the lead, puts together some readings, and we have discussions. Uh, and, and that's just a, an absolute joy for me. I'm, I'm as much a student in that class as I am a uh, professor. 
What are some of the topics that you've gotten into in that class? I'm sure that's an intriguing class for our attendees to hear hear about. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously do a lot on policy issues. That seems to you know attract a lot of interest. You know, um, whatever the hot topic policy issues are today. You know, for example, climate change, one of the areas that I have a specific interest in. Um, but we also do some far flung topics. Uh, if people have ever heard of the Fermi paradox, which is a legitimate question astrophysicists ask about why haven't we discovered aliens in the universe yet? Uh, and there's actually some really interesting debates and discussions about the nature of, of intelligent life in, in the universe. Um, that's probably one of our more far-flung uh, topics. Uh, we also do cultural issues. We've talked about music, we've talked about the arts. Um, and what I always find interesting is that we can always relate it back to leadership and, and management at some level. And so there's always these lessons to be gleaned um, as a future business leader from these, what maybe seem like far-flung topics. I think I can probably speak for our attendees that I did not imagine there was discussions about intelligent life in the universe beyond you know, beyond our own planet being being had at the Darden School of Business. So that's really, that's really cool, um, that class and how the students help design the curriculum. Um, so one of the things I mentioned at the top is that you are chief strategy officer for the Darden School of Business. And uh, I wonder what that looks like. You know, what are you thinking about? What does that role entail here, here at Darden? Yeah, I am the first chief strategy officer for Darden. So it's been a little bit of creation on the fly. Um, first and foremost, obviously, I've helped with our strategic planning efforts and organizing uh, our, our work in those realms. Um, I actually oversee our own digital transformation. So I oversee our IT group, have built out a data and analytics group to help support decision making throughout the enterprise. And then more or less, I do a lot of special initiatives, um, especially around topics that are cross cutting across the enterprise. Um, you know, the other senior associate deans have their lanes, you know, working with various programs and the like. Um, but repeatedly, we see these issues come up that kind of cross across the school. And I'm often tasked with helping lead some of those uh, those efforts. All right. So I want to take a moment here because I've heard you talk about it really persuasively before. And you mentioned student-centered learning and that case method is part of this. Um, but one of the things that's been fun on these office hours conversations is kind of get faculty to share their perspective. At least in that first year, you learn through the case method and that's really you know a big part of the core experience. What's the, in your opinion, what's the value of, of, of that kind of learning experience for, for business school students? Yeah, I, I like to say, uh, you know, lecturing is dead to be you know, provocative. Um, and by that, I mean, as someone who's done actually a bunch of online learning modules with Coursera and the like, um, that if I'm standing there lecturing you, put a camera on me and watch it at your leisure. Like there's no reason to come into a, you know, a building and have um, sit in a classroom to watch me talk to you. Um, the value of the time we have together is so valuable that we need to be using that as a collective learning experience. Um, people talk about flipping the classroom. You know, we've been flipping the classroom at Darden since our very beginning, you know, 60 plus years. And so the learning occurs through not only, again, my standing in the pit, but you're learning from one another. And the diversity of student backgrounds, diversity of experiences that come into the classroom are an incredible learning opportunity for people in that room. And, and that becomes as critical to the learning experience as, as again, you know, my expertise per se. Um, and I think one of the things it does at Darden that I have seen um, 
differentiates us. Uh, and you know, fortunately for Darden, but unfortunately maybe for, for higher education is, you know, Darden's a place where, you know, the students are in class. I mean, it is rare that students miss class. We have a full classroom. It is dynamic. Uh, it is energized. Um, you know, there are many days I go through and we'll have 65 students participate in an hour and a half uh, session. Um, you know, I, I, I joke with my wife who knows better that when I was a, a undergrad, I was maybe not always the best a student in terms of like not falling asleep in class and the like. You know, the Darden classroom is one that will keep you on your toes, keep you energized. And I think it's important because when you think about the business world, um, you're always dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity. And even if you would have the most, you know, wonderfully crafted analysis that you've done, a wonderful spreadsheet or the like, that's the only the beginning of a conversation. And so what happens typically in the real world is you'll present your analysis and then immediately people will be questioning your assumptions, asking you to defend your position. How did you come to this conclusion or that conclusion? You do that in the Darden classroom every single day, multiple times a day, where you're gonna be asked to defend your opinion. You're gonna have students questioning what you decided. That is incredible preparation for the real world, where again, it's not about having the perfect spreadsheet. It's about how do you defend your ideas, justify your assumptions, and in the context of a discussion, um, either make your point of view or evolve your point of view based on that. All right, Mike, well, let's talk about your research areas, because I think one of the goals with this Office Hour series is to spotlight faculty, what they're working on, what they're excited about in their research. And I, I know you've had a, a very busy year so far. You've got a book come out and you've been on, uh, gosh, you've been on the Darden Ideas to Action podcast and talking all about, you know, the work that you've been doing. So tell us a little bit more about your research areas. Yeah, I go back to what I had mentioned that, you know, my core interests are in this kind of triumphant of uh, technology management and policy. So from a technology side, very interested in, in digital technology, but technologies more broadly, innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, I ran our Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation for, for many years. Uh, it's a core area of interest of mine. Uh, in terms of management, specifically strategy, um, as I said, I'm a strategy professor, have you know, been teaching business strategy for 20 plus years, uh, really understanding how businesses operate, uh, the nature of markets and competition. And then last but not least, policy. So a lot of my work is really at the interface of business strategy and public policy or policy more broadly defined, and in particular, this interest in the natural environment. So uh, really dating back to the earliest you know, days that I started to do uh, my doctoral work, I've had this interest. Um, the last couple years, uh, last few years, I've uh, written a couple books. Um, so I had a book come out in 2018 from Stanford uh, called Can Business Save the Earth? Um, a provocative title by design. Uh, the answer is it depends. Uh, and more recently, I have a new book coming out from Stanford uh, called The Decarbonization Imperative that very specifically looks at climate change and is trying to think through, you know, how would we actually solve the climate change challenge? And, and basically what the climate scientists tell us is that we need to decarbonize the global economy by 2050. And by that, we mean have net zero greenhouse gas emissions from human activity. Uh, that is a very, very tall order. Uh, and my own personal viewpoint on this is, is we don't get there without massive disruptive technology shifts. You know, we're, we're, we're talking, you know, 100% electric vehicles, you know, 100% uh, renewable energy or other non-emitting sources, or at least non-greenhouse gas emitting sources like nuclear power. And you can kind of go down the list. Um, and so the book is really all about how do you bring about economic uh, and market transitions to new sustainable technologies. 
How did you get interested in this sort of policy layer of things? I mean, is that something that you've always been interested in or did that kind of come up as you started doing your research, particularly as you think about these bigger questions? I mean, something like climate change, it feels like it has to have like a policy angle to it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I started my PhD, I actually thought I'd be a policy scholar and I got hooked up with a research group uh, that was at this interface of business strategy and, and policy. And it, it really highlighted to me the power of markets um, and the power of markets to, to um, you know, to solve uh, pressing problems in the world. Um, you know, the way I look at it, markets operate in a broader institutional envelope that includes public policy. It includes non-state actors, you know, activists, trade associations and the like. And, and in many ways, it's about how do you think about that system in a way to get the desired outcomes we have as a, as a society? Um, you know, the good news is, is, you know, when you get um, markets to kind of favor these sustainable technologies, take something like electric vehicles, they tend to flip very quickly. Um, and it might only take, you know, five, 10 years for a dominant technology to uh, be replaced by a new technology. I always give the example of like the New England whaling industry, uh, which disappeared in a, you know roughly a decade in the United States as we discovered oil in Western Pennsylvania and figured out how to make it into kerosene, which was a substitute for whale oil, which both were being used for lighting. Um, you think about something like the iPhone and smartphones, you know, the penetration of those was very, very quick. You know, five to 10 years, we had near full penetration of smartphones uh, in the world. So, um, again, if you can get the market conditions right, these new technologies can diffuse relatively quickly. So when you think of climate change, it, it's about like, how can we get there? How can we get these technologies to be favored in the marketplace? And, and that's dealing with policy, but it's also about entrepreneurs and, and incumbent firms and what are they doing and strategizing and how may they um, bring about these changes as well. One of the things that's always interesting me, to me is, I mean, you could have picked almost any book to write kind of in this area. How did you settle on sort of this decarbonization imperative and saying, this is the, this is the book that I want to write. This is a topic that I want to address here. Yeah, again, I've been long interested in environmental issues. And, you know, as many people tell you, you know, climate change is probably first and foremost on most people's minds right now. Um, there's lots of other environmental issues, water uses and things, but they, they all tend to get wrapped into climate change these days. Um, it is arguably the, you know, the defining defining problem of our of our, you know, our generations uh, moving forward. And I think it's beginning to be a lot more saliency just because we're beginning to see the impacts of climate change. In, in many different ways. Uh, and the business community is also kind of waking up to uh, the risks inherent uh, to their business operations uh, because of climate change. Um, so we're, we're kind of in a unique period of time. Um, on, the, on the scary side, we're also in a unique period of time that we're literally running out of time. That if we're going to seriously address this issue, a lot has to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, so I'm very clear in the book, you know, we don't want to be Pollyanna about this. Like, it, you know, it's not this wonderful technology is naturally going to occur and we're going to solve this problem. Um, there, there's got to be concerted effort here to push technologies along to, to get us there. And again, in a relatively short period of time. So you see different dates mentioned, um, you know, as the point of no return or however you want to sort of think about that. You see 2030 sometimes and your, your book picks 2050. How did you pick, how'd you pick 2050? Yeah, we, I mean, we're just basically following, you know, what many of the climate scientists and the uh, um, IPCC, which is a big international organization looking at climate change have, have suggested, but it's absolutely right. It's, it's a moving target. So, 
if we continue to increase emissions over the next, let's say, five years, it shortens that date because it's, in essence, a stock and flow problem. Uh, it's about the amount of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide that we kind of pump into the atmosphere. And so as concentrations reach certain levels, the best scientists are suggesting that's when we get this kind of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius uh, global rise in climate change, which they have kind of targeted as, let's try to keep it below that that level. We're already going to have you know some degree of global warming, but let's try to keep it below the two degree target. Um, so if we don't change our trajectory soon, that 2050 gets shorter and shorter. And I think that's why a lot of people are saying like the next decade, you know, between now and 2030, actually is a critical critical uh, time to start to really significantly reduce emissions should note that here in the US, um, there are current infrastructure conversations going on. And one of the parts of the infrastructure bill as proposed by the Biden administration was a pretty significant investment in electric vehicles, green, green technology, clean technology. And you see coming out of that sort of framework conversation, pretty big gap between what was initially proposed and, and what is actually in the bill that's probably going to go up to Capitol Hill. Well, how do you read all of this, Mike? Is, is it possible to kind of find any kind of common ground here, do you think, from a political standpoint? You know, uh, I, I hope so. I think sometimes it's about framing. I mean, I, I'm always surprised by the politicization of technology. You know, you know, solar isn't Democrat or Republican. It's just a technology. And history is littered. I mean, in many ways, the hallmark of market-based economies is this ability to invent anew. Um, so this is all about, you know, what are the future industries of the world and, and where is job creation going to come? Where is economic value going to be created? Um, this isn't, you know, we would hope this wouldn't be as politicized as it's as it's become. Um, I think in terms of the policy, you know, one of the main themes of the book is we, we emphasize this idea of a technology policy because and to be very sector specific. So take something like electric vehicles. The market dynamics are very positive. I'm very optimistic that we're going to see electrification of vehicles over the next decade. Um, the price uh, cost curve, if you look at batteries in particular, is such that it's not unreasonable that in the next few years, electric vehicles will actually be cheaper than internal combustion engines. And at that point, I think the market flips uh, pretty quickly. So that one, you know, what should the government do? Maybe short-term subsidies, things to kind of push it along. There is the charging infrastructure question that I think, you know, in some ways, the private markets are helping to start, you know, solve, but there could be some role for public intervention there as well. Move on to something like electrical generation. So the good news is renewables, especially wind and solar, have been down a similar cost curve and are now becoming uh, on par and in some cases cheaper uh, than fossil fuels like natural gas. Uh, coal, by the way, in the United States is already being phased out because it's too expensive. Uh, natural gas, due to fracking and the abundant supply of natural gas and its low price, are replacing coal plants uh, very quickly in the United States. The problem with uh, renewables is intermittency. You know, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And so in addition to massive installations of solar and wind, which again, are getting increasingly cheaper, we're also gonna have to think about infrastructure investment in the grid itself. Uh, that includes storage, potentially batteries or other forms of storage, and then also just laying of lines so we're, you know, the sources are close to the uses. Um, and I think one of the things that holds great promise with renewables is what's called smart grid technology, which allows for dynamic trading of, um, of electricity 
which is going to become more important as we see one, the electrification of vehicles and two, more distributed sources of generation like um, residential solar and commercial solar. So imagine a world that right now is, you know, a few thousand power plants in the United States creating electricity and powering, you know, people's homes, but suddenly a world where there's millions of sources of generation on your home, on commercial buildings, trading electricity dynamically and storing it at either locations where it's generated or in your home when you have a, you know, a Tesla in the garage. Um, that's a very different world, uh, one that promises great efficiencies, but it's going to take huge infrastructure investment to, to get us to be able to do that, you know, that type of world. So on that infrastructure investment, I mean, electric grid investment was part of the, the Biden infrastructure plan. It made it into the frameworks. There's money set aside for electric. There's a long conversation in the U.S. about sort of aging grid and the sort of power loss and all this kind of stuff that happens because of the state of our, our current grid. Um, is that where you think the government can be really helpful in these sort of capital intensive kind of heavy investment things? Um, or do you think the private sector also has a role to play there? I think in all these cases, it's it's both. Um, and again, our, our whole argument is kind of sector-based strategy, right? So again, electric vehicles, the market's doing pretty well there. Give some nudges, but you know, I th I'm, I'm feeling good about the way the market's moving. Uh, electrical generation, big infrastructure investment is going to be needed to help move this along. Electricity is a little weird, by the way, anyway, in the U.S. and, and across the world in that it typically is, you know, uh, quasi-monopolies that are quasi-state enterprises in many cases, sometimes state-owned. Um, and so that creates some interesting dynamics that maybe creates more opportunities there. There are other sectors like industrials um, that are actually significant um, uh, creators of greenhouse gases. And, and each of those can look you know, relatively different in terms of the challenges we face. So steel production is a good example. Uh, steel production, there is a, a potential clean source of steel generation, which is called mini mills, which have been around for decades, uh, where they use recycled steel and they melt it down in something called an electric arc furnace, which could be powered by renewable energy uh, and, and in some ways decarbonizing steel. Uh, the problem is uh, there is still heavy use of things called basic oxygen furnaces, uh, especially in China. China is the global produce, leading producer in steel. 80% or more of steel is produced in China, and they predominantly use the, the basic oxygen first, uh, furnace technology. Um, so the question then becomes, is there another technology solution that is you know, cost efficient? Or is this a case where regulation is going to be needed, uh, where you either um, have some like carbon capture and storage, or you try to make some of these transitions to, to mini mills and the like? Um, and again, you can go down the list, cement, a lime production. There's a bunch of these, you know, kind of backbones of our industrial society uh, that, that are going to require, you know, a different set of mechanisms. Uh, and in some cases, more maybe direct regulation um, to, to deal with. I want to stay with this sort of global thread because you see some of the challenges, right? Countries uh, industrializing at different rates, obviously different environmental policy from country to country. And it seems sometimes like, you know, private actors, companies are seeking out countries where there's not as much environmental regulation and operating in these places. And so this is though a global you know, challenge. Climate change affects every country, every country, and all of us here. And so, do you think that there's a global solution that that can work um, in this? Yeah, context? I mean, this is maybe partly why I favor technology. Is that the nice thing is if you can figure out, let's say, the technology in the U.S. or in China, and you're lowering the cost of, let's say, batteries for electric vehicles. 
well, then you don't necessarily need regulation in other parts of the world if, again, the cheapest option is to buy an electric vehicle, right? Again, this is where markets are so powerful and can diffuse. Um, give you an example of an infrastructure case, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in many ways bypass landline um, cellular or landline communications to go directly to cellular. Uh, they didn't need to go through the same growth trajectory like in the U.S. where we built, you know, telephone lines everywhere and created a physical network that way. Um, so there are opportunities to maybe leapfrog to the newer, cleaner technology if you lack infrastructure. Um, now, with that said, uh, again, I'll take something like steel production and the like, you know, it, it, that, that might require maybe concerted global effort to set rules and regulations to try to phase out some of these more polluting, uh, polluting sectors or at least look for other alternatives. And, and that can be challenging. Um, you know, we look at uh, the, the various, you know, UN gatherings and you have these pledges that countries make to reduce their emissions, but they're often not backed up with any real tangible action. And, um, and that's been repeated over and over again over the last, you know, 30 years. So um, you're going to need some global coordination. You're going to probably need some global pressure. I think in some cases, technologies might get to a point where they're going to naturally diffuse. Um, and then these others, there's going to probably have to be some, you know, international kind of uh, coordination and regulation here to try to, to address some of these. But I'll give you, you know, just give you just another example here too that I think we need to think about is you also have to think about the uh, competitive dynamics in different industries. So go back into cement and steel. Um, it's fairly concentrated industries globally. You know, 12 or so large companies dominate the industry. So you can also imagine direct coordination with those companies as a way to try to address these. Uh, one of the chapters we address in the book is agriculture, which is about 25% of global emissions. Uh, it is probably the one I'm most worried about, in part because there are millions of farms out there in the world, everything from large industrial farms to small family farms. And the idea of how do you coordinate and get changes in behavior on such a massively diffused industry, one, by the way, that we need to grow to feed a growing you know, population, uh, I think it's going to be probably the, the most challenging of all of these sectors to, to decarbonize. I want to come back to something you said earlier. And then I also want to come back to the agriculture question too. So a lot of, a lot of things on my brain and we're starting to get some questions in the Q and a, which is always good to see. Um, so there has been this discussion about the sort of green investment, clean technology as a job creator. However, there is transition that happens, right? So you'd mentioned coal. Uh, coal has been in the conversation for a number of years. These jobs have, have gone away. There's been no social safety net really there to kind of how do you help people whose jobs have disappeared and this kind of transition. And so how do you think about the sort of human element of these changes and, yeah. and, and making sure that when we think about sustainable solutions, you're also helping people whose jobs may have fundamentally changed because their industry has changed. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say something insensitive and then I'm going to backtrack on that. So um, there's 50,000 coal jobs in the United States. When Blockbuster Video, uh, for those who are not aware, Blockbuster Video, retailer of uh, rentals for DVDs and the like, went out of business, over 100,000 jobs were lost in the United States. So when we think about job creation and job destruction, you know, we latch on to some of these industries, not recognizing that, you know, that is part of the nature of market economies is this turnover and uh, change. Now, to backtrack, 
What makes it particularly difficult and pronounced in something like coal is those jobs are really concentrated in certain parts of the country. So unlike Blockbuster Video, which was distributed through communities throughout the country, so the loss of Blockbuster didn't devastate a community, coal is devastating you know, certain communities, especially in Appalachia, Western Virginia, West Virginia and the like. Um, and and I, I recognize this from a personal standpoint. I grew up in a steel town in Pennsylvania that by the time I even I was graduating high school, the steel plant was closing down, jobs were lost, just devastating to communities. So, you know, that's a reality, again, of, of markets and economies. And, and I don't mean to dismissive of it because I think we have to think really you know, hard about how we help support those communities. What, what I do feel strongly about is trying to hold, cling to the past is a losing strategy. You know, if if the New England whalers, you know, if we tried to fight to keep whaling going to support Nantucket and uh, those New England whaling communities, you know, you, you would eventually you would eventually lose. And so the question then becomes, how do you do job training? How do you provide those communities with new industries, new opportunities? Uh, and that's that's a tough lift. Um, Sometimes in our past, what we really have is mobility as the solution, uh, which again is not what these communities want to hear, but that people will literally move to where the job opportunities are. Um, you know, I always like to point out that the automobile industry in the United States was in its you know, early heyday, in any ways, like the Silicon Valley of the United States in 1910, you know, thousands of jobs being created, lots of people coming actually from the agricultural south moving to Detroit to take the job opportunities there. And again, we can go through different industries now, Silicon Valley itself, you know, huge influx of talent there because of the tech industry. Again, that's a natural product. Um, but I say that not to be dismissive of the localized impact on communities. So I, I do think you're right, Brett, we have to think about how do we help support these communities in these transitions that we're seeing. I appreciate, appreciate that perspective. I know these are complex questions. I'm gonna come back to agriculture because you do hear people talk all the time about sort of the meat consumption. So, and how changing tastes, for example, around the world, uh, more meat, obviously a lot of methane is produced through this process um, and the rise of, it's a strange thing to say, clean food or yes. clean meat, I believe is the way that it's referred to. So this is like engineered in a lab, grown in a lab, um, protein sources that, tastes like that are chicken or, you know, some sort of meat uh, product. Uh, it's pretty new stuff. I will admit I'm not fully versed on it, but how do you think about all of this? Yeah, my co-author Becky Duff and I have great arguments about the the likelihood of clean meat becoming a dominant source of, uh, of protein. Yeah, so um, uh, livestock in particular uh, and, and, and beef and specifically um, are significant greenhouse gas contributors, both through manure and, um, you know, basically cow belching, intrinsic fermentation, as it's called. And so um, it is something we need to address. And it's an interesting one to me because uh, there are lots of people working on more of the behavioral side of how do we change consumption patterns. I, I am personally more skeptical of our ability to do that. Um, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it. I'm someone who knows better. I, I still enjoy a good steak every once in a while. Um, and so the technology side of this, there are kind of two interesting trends, I would say. One that's got a lot more traction is plant-based alternatives. So something like the Impossible Burger is an example of a plant-based alternative to a hamburger. There are some good examples where that is starting to make significant inroads, uh, in particular dairy. Uh, we're seeing uh, oat, you know, oat and um, almond milk uh, have significant now market share in the, in the kind of broader dairy market. So 
changing preferences absolutely could could help uh, drive that. Uh, the clean meat solution is a particularly interesting one where they're trying to grow meat in the lab. So it is actually, I guess, genetically the same as the beef you would consume from a, from a, a cow, um, but it's literally grown in the lab and doesn't have these environmental impacts. Um, there is a lot of money flowing into this, a lot of venture capital. Um, there are some highly valued companies doing this. Uh, it's not ready for market at this point it's just too expensive um, i think like the first hamburger they created was like a hundred thousand dollars to produce the hamburger i don't think you and i are going to be paying that brett for a, a hamburger anytime soon um but you know but again this is what what people are working on i i think what everyone's initial reaction to this i, I know it's mine is will the will the consumer ever accept a lab grown you know meat meat product which again is is different than a plant grown meat product um remains to be remains to be seen we'll see we'll see if that if it gets traction it's one of the big i think it's one of the big questions that having heard some people in this industry interviewed i think impossible burger beyond meat all of that it's a it's a different question i think i think the lab piece is the one that people react to probably the the most most strongly at least um based yeah. on some of the reading i've done i want to ask a question that's come up in the q a so you're obviously someone who's looked at this sort of intersection of policy and the private sector and sort of markets how has this evolved over the past few decades? Are there any trends that are interesting to you or as, as you've looked at, at these these things? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a number of interesting ones you see in the press all the time now. I mean, I think there was a period really starting in the 70s and predominant through the 80s and 90s where, and I hate to say it because I think business schools were complicit in this, this idea that the purpose of business is to maximize shareholders' returns became dominant in, in society, uh, dominant clearly in the business world. Um, I, I would point out, and I've always pointed out to students, like that's a values-based judgment. That's not a legal argument. That is a values argument, uh, most famously kind of pushed by, by Milton Friedman. Um, what you're seeing now is an evolution to kind of a stakeholder perspective. And, and this is something that, you know, our own Ed Freeman has been, you know, the pioneer of kind of pushing this perspective uh, and it's been out there for decades, but it's really beginning to gain traction. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the right way to be thinking about this. Uh, when we teach strategy, for example, we talk about the strategist challenge that valuable competitive positions emerge out of the values you have as an organization, the opportunities the market provides and the capabilities you have as an organization. And we shouldn't lose sight of the value side. You know, you have discretion as a manager more than you than you might realize. Um, it's not to say there aren't, you know, market pressures from institutional investors and the like. Um, but there's enough discretion, enough leeway there that how you think about going about your business, uh, you know, absolutely brings in the, the values based piece. I think the more interesting or the kind of continuing this interesting trend, uh, we're seeing the rise of CEO activism. I think CEOs are finding it more and more that they can't avoid um, commenting on the social issues of, of the day. Um, I think that's a relatively new thing. I mean, obviously, to the extent these companies had their own footprint, maybe environmentally and the like, they've been under pressure to kind of respond to that for a while. But now they're being asked to comment on social issues that they would argue maybe isn't central to their business. Uh, and so we're seeing that. 
And then the other big thing is the ESG movement in, in investing sides. Uh, so more and more institutional investors, individual investors are asking for value-based investments and are pressuring various investment, you know, investing funds and the like uh, to, to ask these questions about what are the values and the impacts of, of business. So it is definitely top of mind of a lot of CEOs now. And, um, uh, you know, we're trying to get more sophisticated in the way of dealing with these, these types of issues. What do you make of the rise of ESG uh, in the investment uh, world? Uh, is, was it surprising to you that this became something that that investors uh, were were interested in and focused on? Yeah, I, I you know I'm, I'm generally an optimist. You know that about me, Brett. But uh, I, I'm going to be a little cynical here. You know, the, these ideas have been around for decades, um, and there's a little bit of the new flavor of the month. And it's also fascinating to me that we keep changing the terminology. We talked about corporate social responsibility, then we talked about corporate sustainability, and now we all use ESG. It's all basically the same the same concepts here. Things like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, you know, goes back over 20 years. So this is not entirely new. Um, I do worry we're going to go through the hype cycle here. I've ever heard that phrase before where, you know, we're in the high excitement about this and then the reality is going to hit. Uh, the reality that it's actually really hard to measure these things. Um, it's really hard to assess these things. Um, and you also have conflicting social pressures on a lot of issues. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples in the U.S. is gun control. If you're a company like Walmart, you have a certain set of constituencies are saying that you should take a deliberate stand about not selling guns in your store. And there's another constituency feeling directly the opposite. And so what is you know best from a market standpoint, what's gonna increase your revenue? That's a debatable, you know, debatable uh, question. And so from an investor standpoint, what does that mean? Um, I think this goes back to the values again. I think ultimately Walmart and its leadership uh, will have to make some choices about what do they value and, and you know, live with the consequences of that. Um, and I think we'll see the same thing with the investor community as well, is what exactly are you interested in? Are you interested in, in risk assessment? Are you interested in values-based uh, you know, investing? And how do, you, how do you assess that? All too often, a lot of these ESG funds are screening funds. They'll just rule out certain categories of businesses. Um, and uh, again, we can debate whether that has any real impact on the world. I want to go back in time, uh, probably uh, might be at this point about five years ago to a panel discussion that, that you had moderated here in the D.C. area involving uh, some representatives from, from large companies and in trade and industry um, groups. And one of the things I was struck by in that conversation is that essentially the company's planning, thinking was not tied to who was in the White House or what administrative, you know, perspective was, was, you know, flavor of the day. It actually was like, it's much longer term. And I think we oftentimes think like, oh man, this group is now in charge and maybe things are changing and this other group's in charge and maybe things are changing. But from the company's perspective, they are planning in a much different way. I was, I was fascinated by that. Yeah, if you think about, um, we'll call it policy risk, you know, for her company, policy risk is like any other risk, any other market risk. And, um, yeah, I think sophisticated companies are understanding policy risk over a long period of time and not just the short, narrow window. Um, I, I've always found it fascinating. You see sometimes this around, uh, not as much anymore, but a few years back with electric vehicles that when they debated whether to provide subsidies for electric vehicles to, to uh, um, car buyers, um, you know, they would not renew the subsidy and people would be like, 
electric vehicles are done. They're, you know, the industry's dead. And then they put it back and they're like, we're back. And it's a big industry. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, you know, that, that type of, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, back again, like that is not good business thinking. That is not sophisticated. You should be pricing into your models, the thinking about policy risk and the chances that these things are going to evolve here. Um, and I think companies are, again, kind of on the same theme that I was just talking about before, are realizing that they have to be sophisticated in understanding policy risk and, and again putting that into their models and forecasts uh, and it has to be a long-term perspective um, you know I, I look at something like climate change you know again depending on who's in office the interest in climate change ebbs and you know uh, and flows um, in some ways the issue is not going to go away anytime soon so it's going to constantly be there we're not unfortunately we're not going to just like solve it and be done with this and so um, uh, if as a company you have to be thinking you know, 20, 30 years here. How have you seen companies thinking about environmental risk, right? So we talk about all sorts of things from warming planet to rising water levels to sort of disruptions that can happen as a result of this. I mean, what, what's your general take when you talk with companies about how they may be thinking about these sort of environmental risks? Yeah, I try to break it down onto levels. So kind of level one is direct environmental impacts on your operations. You know, if you're an insurance company, you know, the rise in uh, extreme weather events, huge impact on you. Um, if you're a company like Intel or Coke, who actually use a lot of water, uh, Coke obviously for their, for their product, Intel uses a cleaning agent in um, microprocessors. Uh, so droughts can be a huge issue for them depending on where they've located their uh, facilities. Um, uh, agriculture, clearly direct impacts from um, you know, changes in, in, in the climate there. So that's kind of level one. Level two would be, I would call secondary impacts. So one that companies are waking up to is supply chain risks. So if you have a disruption because of one of these events somewhere around the world, and then that affects your supply chain, and then suddenly you can't you know, produce your product or services. So that's kind of level two. Level three is kind of the policy reputational risk. And that is what for a lot of companies they're feeling here. Um, it, it might ultimately be, um, again, regulation or the like that might come along or just simply consumer sentiments that go against you for not, not taking action. So I think companies need to be thinking about it on all three of those levels. And again, it's actually the level three for a lot of companies where they'll, they'll realize this. Um, um, but again, it, it varies a lot across industries. There was this fascinating article in the Washington Post a few years ago about the, the I guess, mineral that goes into batteries um, that are in your laptop, in your phone, that make it possible for them to be lightweight. And the environmental impact, the social impact of that, the sort of global supply chain element of it. Mike, we obviously live in this modern world feels like you need to have a computer, you need to have a phone. Like from a consumer standpoint, it's very complicated to say like, I don't want to support these things since this is ultimately the technology that's in play broadly. How does, how do you think the private industry can develop a solution here that's more sustainable? Well, a couple thoughts, you know, one, I, I saw a speaker who was a climate scientist make the point that like climate change is our number one threat. So like, let's not worry about waste disposal at this point in time. I mean, we should worry about it, but like, let's not do batteries because we're worried about end of life use of batteries because the climate change issue is the big, the big one here. So that's one thought. Um, the, the second one I would say is I think you're highlighting the complexity of the problem. Um, you know, I, I had a student, uh, this is actually an undergrad student, make the comment that, you know, if the oil and gas companies would just stop producing fossil fuels, we would solve climate change overnight, you know. 
that's not a very sophisticated response, right? Like, are you going to stop driving cars that are powered by gas? Are you going to stop using electricity generated by natural gas? You know, are you going to stop using plastics, right? I mean, we talked about plastics yet as another, uh, you know, big use of petrochemicals. And, and that's the global interacting, you know, supply chains that we, that we face. And what we try to do in the book is really go to the scope, what we call scope one emissions, like where are they actually being generated, knowing that downstream they can put pressure on substitution and the like, um, but, but we really need to address those kind of scope one emissions, like where they're actually being, you know, being generated. So that's at least how I try to get my hands around this very, very complex problem when you start thinking about supply chains. I want to give some airtime to the book that you mentioned you published a, a couple of years ago, Can Business Save the, the Earth? Uh, you mentioned that was a provocative title and you know we ob- absolutely do provocative titles here on Office Hours. So what, what's your big takeaway in that book? I know it can be hard to reduce all this work and research, but I mean, any key thoughts you would want to highlight for our listeners today from that book? Yeah, it goes back to something I already mentioned before. You know, again, business operates in a broader institutional envelope. So the way the book is structured is each chapter takes on a a primary stakeholder in the, um, if you will, the value chain of innovation. So we talk about inventors, we talk about investors, we talk about consumers, we talk about managers, you know, the heroic CEOs like, you know, Elon Musk and the like. But then we say surrounding this set of actors is a set of players, uh, some on the public, you know, kind of regulatory side, but also private side as well. And there's a role to play for universities. There's a role to play for activists. There's a role to play, again, for trade associations and the like. Um, You know, take universities. If we think about technology and where technology comes from. the canonical example would be, you know, federal funding for basic R&D in a university laboratory that maybe takes decades before it gets to a point that it starts to become commercially viable. It's spun out and licensed into a new entrepreneurial venture that's eventually then acquired by a large incumbent firm who then scales the technology and moves it out into the world, right? Um, that's the way things work. And, and each of those parts of that chain of innovation open up opportunities for interve- interventions to try to drive more of this kind of disruptive sustainable technology that we think is you know key to all of these uh all of these issues so that's why again you know as a good academic we we reframe a title that we then basically say it depends and it depends on that broader collection of actors um, to think about how businesses will solve it but i do think it's important to emphasize the the role that business plays and markets plays because i think there's increasing rhetoric especially as the saliency of climate change rises of of rejecting markets outright um and and i i always go back to uh borrowing from winston churchill's comments about democracy you know capitalism is the worst economic system until compared to any others right so um you know there's there's a lot of benefits and a lot of value being created through our capitalist markets it's a question of how do we harness them and direct them in ways that then benefit society what do you make of everything that's happening in space right now i think of come up in the Q&A about like one of those sort of interesting places where there's a lot of private industry activity. This has traditionally been something that's you know, the domain of, of public sphere. And now all of a sudden you have rockets going up from private companies. And I guess we're approaching commercial space tra- travel, which is amazing yeah. to say. Um, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually done some consulting with NASA uh, on exactly this issue. And, and it's fascinating because, you know, the, the models flipped in some cases where NASA is actually like contracting with 
uh, SpaceX to get something done instead of maybe the other way around. And um, I, I think it's a positive, right? Because again, uh, the private sector by the ability to create revenue streams and business models that, that obviously create capital flows into those organizations can scale in ways that sometimes the, the public sector cannot uh, and, and command resources. Um, it's interesting, you know, there's been a lot of interest in like social entrepreneurship. And one at the Patent Institute, we run a number of things like our innovation lab and we get ventures in there in our incubator. And I always tell students that like the question of whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit is actually like a second or third order decision. You know, the first decision is like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? The fundamental difference at the end of the day is in the for-profit sector, um, you have the ability to basically sell equity uh, and use that to raise funds and help advance your enterprise. Whereas in the nonprofit sector, you're typically using donations, which give you a tax benefit as a way to energize and, and fund your uh, your operations. And you could even extend that maybe to like NASA, who's using federal funds uh, to do that. They both can be viable. The question is, how do you create the most impact for what you're trying to achieve? And, and so anyway, I think what SpaceX has done is shown, yeah, it is potentially, you know, have a viable commercial market here uh, that could help create capital flows that then allow us to do more in this in this space. So obviously some things in the news lately about climate change. I think there's a new IPCC report that's coming um, and obviously a lot of conversation here in the United States about infrastructure and clean technology and um, there will be even more conversation in the next few days as the infrastructure bill continues to, to play out on Capitol Hill. What climate stories are you following closely or things related to your research are you really dialed into right now? Yeah, I think the infrastructure bill, you know, as again, kind of, you know, I was really pleased to see it. It's, it's consistent with my attitude about having a technology policy. Um, admittedly, the U.S. has not been very aggressive with technology policy for almost a half century. Um, there is a history here, especially in the wake of World War II. Uh, Vannevar Bush was the first kind of U.S. science and technology policy advisor. We, we had a number of major accomplishments driven by a very you know forward-thinking technology policy, including things like the internet, right? Like the building out of that backbone by DARPA and the like. So there's a history here that we seemingly have forgotten. And only now I feel like we're starting to wake up to this idea of technology policy. Um, dare I say, you know, economists have contributed to this problem because the standard response to climate change has been put a price on carbon. And I'm always very clear, like I support that notion, but it's just one out of literally hundreds of tools and levers available to us to try to advance uh, our, our technology with respect to climate change. And if that's the only solution we think about is a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, we're, we're missing huge opportunities, I think, to, to help try to address the problem in, in other ways. Um, so again, infrastructure bill, those types of kind of technology specific investments, that's, that's my argument. And I'm glad to see it's kind of, at least in the United States, we're, we're getting some traction there. It's interesting to note, by the way, China, you know, who has these five-year economic development goals that they set, you know, they've been very aggressive on solar and renewables and electric vehicles and, and even things like autonomous vehicles and the like. So, you know, they've had a robust technology policy for, you know, decades. It, it only feels like the U.S. is kind of reawakening to this notion now that we can invest in technology and advance it uh, through, our, through our federal policy. It's interesting to sort of think about that because I think there are people who've noted that the development of clean technology, these sort of green technologies, helping people 
helping countries sort of cope with these sort of environmental disruptions. This is another way of diplomacy. It's another way of, of influence around the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, as we know, climate change is an issue that, um, you know, the rest of the world seems to be more passionate about than the U.S. does on average. And uh, the variety of reasons and political, you know, um, polarization in the United States that are contributing to that. So I think the world has looked at the U.S. and, and been angry with us and, and in many ways, you know, vaulting us because we haven't been taking a lead on this. Um, and again, if you take a technology perspective, why wouldn't we want to be taking a lead? Like, don't we want to be the world's leader in the next generation of, of technologies and, and industries? And by the way, you got to be careful because often, more often than not, when we have disruption and we have technologies being replaced, we also see a change in the competitive ordering. So take something like automobiles, you know, there's no guarantee that our US-based automobile companies will continue to survive and thrive in a electrical world. And it's great to see an entrepreneurial company like Tesla from a purely American perspective, have the traction and grow as they, as they have. Um, you know, solar, uh, the, at least the production of solar panels, that's almost exclusively in this point, like a China, you know, dominated market. We, we don't have a big, big presence there. Um, is, do we really want to concede these core technologies? And I think you've seen that most pronounced in the U.S. recently with uh, microprocessors, right? Like, you know, suddenly we had this awakening that, oh, my goodness, we don't really produce many microprocessors. And now we don't have enough to produce cars and other things that we do in the United States. Um, so, you know, I, I hope, again, a little competition between countries on technology in this space could actually be a good thing. You know, because we need that. We need to be pushing ourselves on these technologies. One of the things that has come up in the infrastructure bill is the investment in broadband. I think it's currently slated for maybe sixty-five billion dollars in investment. I don't. I don't know, Mike. I, I was hard to judge these numbers. Is that enough? Is it should it be more? Because like there are people who've said that essentially broadband, broadly available across the United States, is essentially the new electrification. You know, sort of that that you know that what happened in the twenties, thirties here in the U.S. This is just the next wave of this. Do you think about it that way? I do. I, admittedly, I'm not as close to it to know exactly what the right number is, but you're absolutely right. If you look in the U.S. history, we have had, you know, electrification, uh, the U.S. highway system, you know, the internet. Like, we have had repeatedly these uh, public, then private kind of co-investment in assets that then have advanced us as a, as a country. Um, these are just the next list. You know, again, smart grid to me should not be controversial. Like this is just simply like, let's have a modern grid that meets the needs of today's society. Uh, wouldn't we, you know, don't we want to be the most technologically advanced country? <laughs> um, and, and so I don't know why these, again, become so hard and so politicized uh, here. Um, I, I do think, and this goes within my, you know, idea about the institutional envelope. Uh, we've come in this rhetoric about, kind of extreme rhetoric about like free markets versus socialism on the other extreme. And, and the reality is somewhere, of course, in between. Uh, markets are never purely free, right? Like if you don't have enforcement of contracts, there's a lot of the roles that government plays, you know, enforcement of patents. These are really important for the functioning of markets and business. Um, it, it's just a question of degree and where you put the pressure points in a place like the US. But again, everything gets framed as these extremes as if we're manipulating markets or, you know, we're always influencing and changing markets based on the investments we make. Um, and again, what's the, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve here? 
All right, so if someone who's listened to this conversation is interested in learning more, a book that you found or a book or two that you found really influential in kind of shaping your thinking, anything you'd recommend here? Uh, so I can't name my own books. You I can guess. totally name your own books. You absolutely. <laughs> it's a pure promotion of my own work. Um, well, on this last, you know, with this last topic, there's a great book by an economist called The Entrepreneurial State, uh, which talks about just this interface between the role of government and um, entrepreneurialism and innovation in different uh, different societies. Uh, you know, one that I've been reading recently that talks about some of these broader themes is uh, uh, Robert Putnam's latest work. Uh, called Upswing, uh, which talks about uh, kind of century levels trends in uh, collectivism versus individualism in the United States and how uh, we're finding it hard right now to, to, you know, come together to do things that advance our, you know, advance our society. And hopefully that will swing back the other way and we'll, we'll tackle some of these big problems. Because it did feel for a while there, the U.S., um, you know, we, we've historically been a leader in trying to address big problems. Um, um, but lately, it seems like we, we struggle to do so. So I, I hope, hopeful that we can take something like climate change and, and trade it as an opportunity to be a leader um, in the world. The last question, Mike, we tend to end these sessions with this question. And just, you know, for you, um, why, why Darden? Uh, why, why should our listeners here, maybe some of them are in the incoming class, already made this decision, but for folks who are still considering their options, you know, why Darden? Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, it's an incredibly tight, rich community. Um, and it's, you know, the, the student life, the engagement of faculty with students, both in the classroom and outside classroom, this idea of student centered learning, again, permeates everything that we that we do. Another, you know, feature of UVA is an emphasis on student self governance, you know, that the students are, are in charge of, if you will, or uh, responsible for their their education and experience there. Um, all of that creates this just incredibly dynamic, and, and you can tell from our alums, uh, transformative experience that we have, you know, the most loyal alums in the world who, who talk about Darden in those transformational uh, terms. Um, and so as a faculty, you know, it, it's just absolutely a joy uh, to see the students, to engage with them, to see their passion for, for Darden and UVA uh, and, and their passion for these big ideas. I mean, I think, again, we, we frame ourselves, we position ourselves, we think about the, the school strategy as, you know, a purpose-driven leadership. And, uh, our, you know, we our tagline, you know, find your why, you know, all of it speaks to this idea of the value of business, the value of leadership, um, purpose-driven opportunities to, you know, solve the world's problems. And, and that's just empowering, just really empowering um, for our students and for our faculty. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time, for calling in from the from the sound uh, there. Incredible catching up with you today and obviously hearing your thoughts on this really uh, critical conversation topic. I think we all recognize that this is one of the great challenges of our times here. So great to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Brett. And that was my interview with Mike Lennox, a member of the Strategy, Ethics and Entrepreneurship faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.